The Internet History Podcast is brought to you by MetaLab. Their slogan is MetaLab, we make interfaces. For a decade, MetaLab has helped some of the world's top companies and entrepreneurs build products that millions of people use every day. You probably didn't realize it at the time, but the odds are you've used an app that they've helped design or build. Apps like Slack, Coinbase, Facebook Messenger, Oculus, Lonely Planet, and many more. MetaLab wants to bring their unique design philosophy to your project. Let them take your brainstorm and turn it into the next billion-dollar app, from idea sketched on the back of a napkin to a final shipped product. Check them out at metalab.co. That's metalab.co. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. As promised, here's part two of our conversation with Rich Jaroslavsky. You're going to be surprised how the second half of the story intersects with a lot of the other stories we've chronicled on the show, which I guess just goes to illustrate how much and to what degree it was a small world at the beginning of the web and how anyone who was doing anything on the web at that time was basically going to rub shoulders with everyone else. That and some great insights on the current state of digital media today. My thanks again to Rich Jaroslavsky. Okay, yeah, talk to me about that whole paywall debate. Like, all of the other pioneers, that some of whom I've spoken to on the show, um, at the time were launching ad-supported websites because the belief at the time was that no one will pay for anything on the Internet. It's a fool's errand to even try. So was the plan at the Wall Street Journal from day one to to do a paywall to ask people to pay for what you're doing online? Well, you have to remember that when we started work on what became WSJ.com, we didn't even know it was going to be on the web. We thought we were building an online service like AOL. And of course, people paid for AOL. They weren't necessarily paying for the content. They were paying for the connectivity uh, but, you know, people didn't make the distinction between the two. So we always had it in the back of our minds, even before we knew we were going to publish on the web, that um, uh, a changing of, uh, of hands of money was going to be a piece of it or we wanted it to be a piece of it. When we um, decided to move the whole thing to the web, that piece came along with it. Um, but, of course, it was hugely controversial because this was the era of information wants to be free. Nobody will ever pay for any information on the internet. Um, and, um, you know, the, the idea that we were gonna try to make people pay was really quite revolutionary for, for its time. Well, and was there, was there even internal debate? Were there people inside the journal that were like, this is the, the wrong strategy to take? Huge, huge internal debate that cut both ways. There were some people who wanted us to charge hundreds and hundreds of dollars um, because they said, you'll kill the print newspaper, the, the fear of cannibalization. There were other people um, who said we should charge nothing because no one will ever pay for content on the internet 
And um, by charging, all you're doing is marginalizing the journal. It'll become less important. People won't pay attention to it. So there was this huge debate raging over our heads. And we settled on a, a, what we thought was a really moderate program. I want to say it was $29 or $39 for subscribers to the print edition to get the online journal, and $59 um, if you didn't get the print edition also uh, to get the online, online journal. And we felt that was kind of a, a moderate middle course. I remember one day um, Dorothea Palshow, who was the president of our division, um, and who um, was sort of was a huge, hugely important in the success of WSJ.com. But Dorothea came to me one day, um, and we took one of her walking meetings across the Dow Jones campus in South Brunswick, New Jersey. And she said, "There's something I don't understand." She said, "I understand why the business people want to charge something for WSJ.com, but you know, you're the news person." I would think you would want it to be free to get the biggest possible audience. Why are you um, supporting a paywall? And my answer, which may be completely backwards, um, but it was the, the best answer I had was, look, this is a new medium. We're trying to do something new and something that is important. And I think that what we are building is something that will, um, that will have real value for users. And the best way I know to prove to users that something has value is to make them pay for it. Uh, if you don't charge anything, you are essentially saying that what you're doing has no value. And I felt very strongly um, that what we were doing did have value. And so I was supportive of the paywall, which I think surprised, I know it surprised Dorothea, and I think it surprised some people internally who figured I'd be on the side of information wants to be free. Well, so what is the uptake then um, after the launch? And I guess we have to think about this from both sides. Um, so if no one uh, can access it unless they're paying, um, but you have that special deal for subscribers, I guess the first thing would be how, how do uh, existing um, dead tree paper <laughs> subscribers uh, react uh, to, to the website? Well, the first thing we did, we, we, um, we had a whole strategy laid out when we launched. We had been publishing the prototype money and investing update, we called it, um, for free for maybe six or, six or eight months before we launched the full WSJ.com. Um, before we launched and when we launched WSJ.com, we said, uh, we laid out a couple requirements. One, we said everyone who wanted to use WSJ.com had to register, um, but we did not immediately put up the paywall. Mm. We told people we will eventually be putting up a paywall. You have to register, but if you register, you can come in and check it out for free. And so we, um, we, we did it in stages that way. So um, people who registered could come in, look around, um, when the paywall finally went up uh, a few months after our launch, um, it was a really interesting, um, uh, interesting result. Um, interesting not only in terms of what it did to our usage numbers, but in how it was perceived by, um, by other media uh, that was reporting about us. What happened was that during that free period, 
Um, we had, you know, several hundred thousand people come in, register, look around, leave, never come back. Um, but they were still counted as registered users. When we put up the paywall, about 10% of the people who had ever registered while we were free um, uh, signed up for paid subscriptions. Oh, that's and great data. Wow. We thought that was great. We thought, you know, this gives us a solid base to build from. Um, but if you go back and look at contemporaneous news stories, uh, one I still remember, which still sort of ticks me off, that was in the New York Times, was, you know, the headlines were, Wall Street Journal loses 90% of its audience when it puts up the paywall. Because again, the conventional wisdom was information wants to be free, nobody will ever pay for content on the internet. And so these numbers that I actually thought were pretty damn good, um, you know, were I think widely perceived as being a disaster for the journal because, quote, you lost 90% of your audience, unquote, by putting up the paywall. No, but, with, with the with the benefit of 20, 25 years or whatever it is, uh, th that that's actually that's a, I've never heard that number uh, anywhere before. Like uh, converting ten percent of people that just sampled it, like that's fantastic. I mean, talk to the to the New York Times for for them trying their multi year strategy to try to get people to subscribe to the digital ed edition. Like that that seems like amazing numbers to me. Well, it did. I was I was very pleased with it, but if you go back and look. Most people who, who were writing about it, um, or at least many people who were writing about it, took it as confirmation of their own perception that, um, that the internet was and would always be a free medium um, and that people would never pay for content on it. Did, um, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but, but how soon do you estimate that the online division uh, could pay for itself was self-sustaining as opposed to a loss-leading um, uh, experiment. That's a hard question for me to answer okay. because um, uh, you know it, it's an it's a question for accountants, I think. Right, right, right. Remember that we were getting content from our own staff that was creating content, but we were also getting content from the print Wall Street Journal and its staff. Mm. And we were getting content from the Dow Jones Newswires. So I think if you, um, if you assumed that uh, we were simply repurposing content from others, um, we probably looked profitable earlier. If you apportioned some of the costs of, um, of those other um, parts of the organization, to WSJ.com, that probably delayed the way you look at that. Well, problem. you know, the, the reason that I asked that question is because other people, New York Times people and, and other publications, um, when I've asked them about this paywall versus um, uh, ad-supported debate in the earliest, earliest days, they've always dismissed, well, the Wall Street Journal is a different uh, animal because people are willing to pay for financial content. They, they have a specific type of content that people will always be willing to pay for because it's information that will make people money. Um, but then I've always thought, well, no, but the, the, the journal never abandoned a paywall for WSJ.com. So there had to be, it had to make sense. There had to be enough uptake, even from the very earliest days, that that's always been the strategy. Well, the, I think that that's, that that's true. Um, the other point I would make is a lot of those people 
that um, didn't charge a subscription, that embraced the free model, um, you know, eventually went to a paid model. And um, and you, New York Times just released some results the other day. They were great. Good. Yeah. Um, you know, I I would argue, is it true that financial information has more value than other kinds of information? Yeah, I, I don't dispute that in the slightest. Um, but the key to me was always coming up with the content that people would value. And if people valued it, they would pay something for it. Now, that could have been financial news, but, you know, I'm a fanatic San Francisco Giants fan, If uh, and I was living in New York. Um, you, you know, I would have paid something for really high-quality San Francisco Giants content back then. Um, you know, you have to find what it is that the audience cares about and then give them something of value built around that. And if you do that, um, the paid model can be made to work for all kinds of information, not just financial news. Uh, a couple other questions about um, nuts and bolts. Uh, we already talked about that the idea very early on was, because other publications, it was just we regurgitate what was in the, the print edition in the morning. But you guys, um, you had um, digital-only staff very early on, and... From the very beginning, if there if if news broke, there was no problem with with it with it going on the online version immediately, even if it wasn't ahead of ahead of the next day's issue, right? We had um, we had a, a number of what I thought were common sense um, systems in place. Um, for example, um, if the Wall Street Journal print edition was breaking some big exclusive story that only they had. We would work with the print edition and with the Dow Jones Newswires, and there was a hierarchy. Um, uh, the print paper would, um, would go out on the newsstands overnight. Then the Dow Jones Newswires, which people were paying more money for to get real-time news, um, would carry the story. And then we might we might come along in WSJ.com and um, and publish that story 20 minutes later or something. Um, so we we had a kind of a hierarchy of of news when it was exclusive. When a lot, news, a lot of news isn't exclusive. You know, something that happens today um, that you know the the White House announces something. Um, there's no um, value in building in exclusivity in that kind of news. And in that case, we would, um, you know, update the stories or get that story into WSJ.com as fast as we possibly could. Um, what about the uh, actual financial data, like stock quotes and things like that? One of the people that I, I spoke to uh, a couple years ago was Chris Cooper, who founded Quote.com. Um, how did you guys launch with uh, stock quotes? I imagine you probably didn't launch with real-time stock quotes, um, but what about the actual financial data? We launched with um, um, a 20-minute delayed um, stock quotes. Uh, we also gave our users the ability to create portfolios um, that were updated with, um, with the 20-minute delayed stock um, information. Um, and over time, that offering became more robust as the print paper realized, number one, that um, more and more of its audience was 
uh, online and, um, and had access to quotes in real time. And number two, as the cost of newsprint continued to increase um, and the cost of printing those agate tables in the print newspaper every day, um, the cost increased and the value to users um, or readers of the print paper decreased uh, because, you know, who was going to wait until 8 a.m. the next morning to find out how a stock did yesterday when you could tap in, uh, you know, a, a symbol um, into a web browser and get the information, you know, at least 20 minutes within the last 20 minutes, if not, uh, if you paid more real time. So over time, the print paper came to us and, um, and said, we want to migrate more and more of the, of the stock tables and the financial data to WSJ.com and then point people, um, print readers, to say, if you want, you know, want this information, here's how to get it. Go to WSJ.com. It's funny. We're, we're so through the looking glass in this modern world that, like, it's, it's almost worth pausing. What you just described, it's almost worth pausing to think about that, that it's so obvious today that uh, what just happened in the last 10 minutes, what just happened in the last 30 seconds, that's like the value proposition of digital media, you know? And um, the, the fact that that was a lesson that had to be learned, and it almost, like you, what you just described, is it was learned as an actual dollars and cents thing where you got to understand, kids, today, like the journal was this big, thick paper every single day, and a ton of it, pages and pages and pages, was just stock data and financial data and things like that. And so it literally, that was a huge expense that made more sense online <laughs> and, and, and made more sense just from a pure usage uh, perspective. You know, I teach a class at the University of California on the history of online news. And one of the points I make to the class every year, uh, and it, 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 you can't repeat it often enough, is stuff that seems so crashingly self-evident today was not self-evident at all in 1995, 1996, 1997. You know, the idea that you would be, um, have, be staffed 24 hours a day and updating news 24 hours a day, um, you know, well, of course, the Internet's a global medium. Of course, you, you have to be uh, on top of the news 24 by 365. Well, yes, of course, that's clear to us now. It was not at all clear in 1995. And while those were decisions that we made at WSJ.com, there were other people for what I'm sure they thought equally good reasons who made very different decisions about what the medium did and didn't require. So, you know, what, what we're seeing today is the product by now of 25 years of lessons learned. But you can't assume that it was as obvious in 1995 as it is today. Um, when, you, when we first uh, got in, in contact, you emailed me a, a great story from around this time about um, Jim Clark and Netscape, um, that, that you met with him around the time that WSJ.com was launching and around the time that uh, Netscape was still Mosaic Communications. Um, if, if you could, uh, and you uh, Remember, just re relate that story real quick. Sure. Um, uh, this was, as you say, at, a, at just the time when, when Jim Clark and Mark Andreessen were forming uh, Netscape Communications. And it was, a, it was a company designed to commercialize um, the 
first graphical web browser that Andreessen had written uh, as a student at the University of Illinois, which was called Mosaic, um, which looms very large in the history of, of the web. So they had formed this company. They had um, named it Netscape. They were in the process of uh, launching the first version of the Netscape browser. Um, but the Netscape browser still had the M for Mosaic on the browser rather than the N for Netscape. And so uh, four or five of us from, from WSJ.com were in DC and there was some conference going on and we wound up having lunch with Jim Clark, the co-founder of Netscape. And I rather innocently asked, um, gee, when are you gonna change the M um, on the browser to an N? And it set off a, a, what I can only characterize as a diatribe on, on Jim Clark's part, um, because at the time, Netscape was embroiled in a battle with the University of Illinois, um, because the University of Illinois was asserting that since the original code for the Mosaic browser um, uh, was written while Andreessen was a student uh, at the University of Illinois, that the university had ownership rights over that code. And so, um, uh, you know, the Illinois was creating all sorts of problems for Netscape as Netscape was trying to get up and running. And I remember uh, Clark saying, you know, this young man, Mark Andreessen, is going to be very wealthy one day, and the University of Illinois will never see a nickel of it. Um, he said, at Stanford, we'd be, you know, we'd be falling all over ourselves to find, you know, find him investors, find him office space, find him resources. Um, and he would be so grateful that he would, um, uh, you know, donate heavily to Stanford, which is exactly what happened with both Yahoo and Google. Um, but the University of Illinois took a much more um, retrograde view of the, of the situation. And, um, and Clark was just furious about it. As a sidelight, if you've ever wondered where the name Mozilla comes from, uh, Mozilla is the descendant of the original Netscape code that Andreessen had to rewrite um, because uh, Illinois was asserting control over his original Mosaic code. And Mozilla was a, a contraction of Mosaic killer. Um, and now, of course, that's the, the engine behind the Firefox browser. Right, and and the story that I've always heard is that in the end, to settle, um, they they gave the University of Illinois like two million dollars or something like that, but they offered them equity instead. And and I think Jim Clark said at one point he's like, you know, they 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 lost about like thirty or fifty million dollars by not taking the equity. Um, so we haven't talked at all about um online news association. So tell me what that was uh, and your involvement there. Sure. Well, the Online News Association um, uh, got started. Um, one of the things that I've always tried to do um, is to work the last week in August, the week before Labor Day. Um, when everybody else is on vacation, you can usually find me um, at my desk. And that's because um, it's a week of no interruptions. And so um, uh, one late one August, um, I, um, I, I put together a memo outlining, uh, you know, an organization of, of uh, digital journalists and got Dow Jones to give me a little bit of money to, to sort of start and have an organizational meeting. The origins of, the, of ONA 
um, were that um, every time I got together with one of my um, uh, peers from another online news organization, we would do what journalists traditionally do when they get together. We'd sit around and bitch to each other about how the print side doesn't get it, the, you know, the business side's a pain in the butt. Um, we would sit around and complain to each other. And I remember one day thinking, well, rather than just, you know, um, uh, having, you know, ad hoc uh, complaint sessions, we should create an organization so we can all get together and complain to each other in an, in an organized fashion. So uh, I wrote this, um, this um, memo, got a little bit of money from Dow Jones, and went through my Rolodex, um, as it then was, uh, and sent out emails to uh, a bunch of people I knew at other online news organizations, inviting them to a, um, a meeting in, uh, I think it was at the O'Hare Hilton in Chicago, um, to just discuss whether we should try to create an organization of digital journalists. And uh, even though it was a December day in Chicago, it was one of the warmest December days in Chicago on record. Um, and we got about 20, 25 people showed up to this uh, meeting and we all kind of concluded that, yeah, there was a real need for an organization that specifically focused on the issues um, that we were all dealing with in our, um, in our jobs every day. Um, and out of that, the uh, Online News Association was born. Um, and the, the, the thing that I, when I look back at those days, this was the late 90s, um, the bubble was, um, to mix a metaphor, in full flower. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of new media organizations springing up um, that went from zero to enormous organizations overnight. We were not those guys. Um, we were the plodders, we were slow and, you know, we, the, we spent, I think I spent most of the first year working on things like the Articles of Incorporation and the, the uh, application for tax-exempt status. Um, meanwhile, other organizations were springing up and far surpassing ONA um, in terms of their, of their reach and their programming and everything else. But when the bubble burst, a lot of those organizations vanished overnight, whereas ONA, um, because we were going so slowly and methodically, um, we uh, managed to keep moving forward. And you flash forward now, um, uh, the ONA annual conference um, drive, draws about um, between 2,500 and 3,000 people a year. This year's conference is going to be uh, in September in New Orleans. Um, and, you know, I, I, I go every year and I look around and I am astonished by, um, by how large and how important the organization has grown. No thanks to me. I, I you know, got it started and was president um, for the first couple of years and, um, and stepped back. But my predecessors over time have really done a fantastic job in building this organization to be a major voice and a major force um, for uh, online journalism. And increasingly, as all journalism has migrated online, it's become an increasingly important force um, for the support of journalism writ large. Uh, I, I want to come back before we end to um, how 
how journal all journalism is digital journalism basically right now but um i you when do you go to bloomberg news is it after the bubble bursts or around that time um well the bubble burst in you know 2000 mm -hmm. 2001 period um i um uh having started at wsj.com or, or at the online uh, online operation back in 94 um, in uh, early 2001, I went back to the print paper as a senior editor. Um, and so um, I was there for a year or so. Um, and, um, and that was at about the time the bubble was bursting. Um, so I was back on the print side for a while. And then having, um, having been at the journal literally since I was 21 years old, um, you know, as, as one of my friends put it, it's time to quit your first job. Uh, and so I left um, the journal in 2002, uh, worked very briefly for a private investment firm, and then joined Bloomberg News in 2004. Well, I've not spoken to anyone uh, that I know of, I don't think so, um, that worked at Bloomberg. And so I, I actually don't even have, I don't have a question formed to ask you about it, but let me put it this way in my in my day job for the the daily podcast um you know in in my mind bloomberg is one of the most vibrant and successful news outlets going and you know from day one bloomberg as a company has always been about data and like real-time information and things like that so i'd just be curious anything um that you could tell us about um bloomberg news and and maybe its contribution to how um media has evolved over the last 15 years or so well bloomberg um you know it has had a significant impact on media um i would argue that it's had probably an even more significant impact on wall street um what what bloomberg started out as um was a terminal a box a computer um that bundled in um, real-time data, analytics, and news. Um, so it was sort of one-stop shopping for financial institutions. And talk about something that, um, that has value. I mean, Bloomberg, uh, the, I don't know what, the, what a Bloomberg, a membership in Bloomberg costs now, um, but, you know, at the time I was there, I think it was already $1,500 per person per month. So um, it's, it was an incredibly profitable thing. Uh, it eventually morphed from being uh, the Bloomberg terminal, the dedicated box, to an online service that runs on, on many different platforms. So you can think of the Bloomberg today as the world's most sophisticated and expensive online service. And news was always an important component of that. Um, but the real value um, in Bloomberg, uh, which even predated the creation of Bloomberg News, um, was the, the access to real-time data and analytics um, to manipulate that data um, that it, uh, that it um, afforded to people on Wall Street. And that is still a major, a major portion of the value proposition today. Now, over time, Bloomberg has become much more of a media um, and news company uh, not just Bloomberg News, the operation that provides news for the terminal um, or for the for the online service, but also Business Week magazine, um, you know, uh, uh, Bloomberg Television. Um, it's it's become a, a a much more vibrant media company. 
Um, but the core of it is and always will be, I suspect, um, the combination of, of data analytics and news that, that constitutes the, the core Bloomberg service. Well, you know, maybe this is getting uh, into this sooner than I thought I, uh, we would, but this is the right time to say it. Like, um, so it's almost like that news maybe still remains like a loss leader. I mean, it's obviously a necessary component for the service that Bloomberg provides to its subscribers. But is that is that maybe always the way that it's going to be like the actual news and journalism has to be supported by something else that's a cash cow? Um, and, and, and that's why because Bloomberg has that cash cow, that's why their their news operation is is thriving right now still. I, I think on one level, um, yes, uh, the fact that the that the, the the Bloomberg service is so fantastically profitable. Um, there's a reason Michael Bloomberg is the wealthiest man in New York, which is saying something. Um, you know, I think that 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 clearly is part of it. Um, and I, I caveat what I'm about to say with the fact that I haven't been there for five years. Um, but at least when I was there, um, while there was recognition that, yes, the data, the data, the analytics, um, you know, in on one level were, quote, paying for new, the news operation, unquote, um, uh, you know, the, the Bloomberg always resisted sort of breaking out um, news as its own profit and loss center. Um, it was it was thought that news was an integral part of the overall package, and you couldn't really disentangle the value of news from the value of anything else that the terminal provided. Right. News news is data like any other kind of data in a sense. Yeah, and and you know Bloomberg, um, it's real time news. Um, it is you know if. If uh, I was uh, executive editor in charge of the global economic and governmental news coverage, and you know, if if we were one second behind Reuters in reporting the Romanian inflation figure, I'd be writing a memo to explain why. Um, you know, the the uh, the the amount of money that could change hands based on one um, news article or even news headline sent by Bloomberg News was incalculable. So, you know, news is another form, as you put it, it's another form of data. And, and I think that was part of the reason why Bloomberg was always very resistant to, um, to analyzing things and saying, well, news is a lost leader. Um, you know, I think, I think news is, is totally integral to the package. Where do you think, um, earlier in our conversation, you said that, you know, there's, I can't even remember the exact words, but there's never been a better time for journalism or journalists. But I wonder where you think the journalism or even media business is, um, because there's been, we're at the point now where um, even digital media uh, standalone, never, never print. Hundred percent digital media is the 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 voxes, the vices, the uh, mics of the world are, are laying people off left and right. The buzzfeeds of the world are laying people off left and right. What do you think of the of the of the business model for a pure play journalism and news site, even digitally native right now? Well, it's a it's a, a complicated question. When I say it's a golden age for news, 
Um, you know, it is, it is a reflection of the fact that the news has never been more important. Um, I mean, I think right now we are in the midst of an existential debate about what it means to be a free society, um, about what it means to have a free press. Uh, you know, the story has never been more important, at least in my lifetime. Uh, by the same token, you know, you, you can't be ignorant of the challenges that um, news faces on an, econ on an economic front. Um, and certainly with the layoffs that have been announced um, at, at a number of, of digital, um, digitally native news organizations, that's, it's terrible news. Now, there are a bunch of reasons for that. For example, um, you know, a lot of those organizations, I think, became very dependent on traffic they were getting from social media, especially Facebook. Well, Facebook has tweaked its algorithm to de-emphasize news, and so that's um, created additional challenges. Um, uh, in some cases, maybe um, uh, companies um, overexpanded or they expanded in, in directions that weren't sustainable. Um, but ultimately, I think it gets back down to the very simple proposition that if you build something that is of genuine value to your users, you will be okay. If you're just trying to catch the latest wave, if you're just trying to surf the latest trend, um, uh, you know, you might, you might have short-term success, um, but long-term, uh, it's not sustainable. But if you can build something that users will value, users will pay for it, and you can build a business on that. I've, I'm convinced of that with every fiber of my being. Well, speaking of that, uh, you want to tell me about what you're up to today, uh, maybe smart news or uh, your, your teaching and lecturing, but I'm curious more, actually, given what you just said about smart news. Sure. Um, smart news, uh, where I've been now for four and a half years, um, is a, a news aggregator. It's an app for iOS and Android. You can download it for free in the app stores. Um, and um, it, is, it is a fascinating um, connection of, of news values and journalism with um, state-of-the-art machine learning and, um, uh, and computer science. Uh, the company actually is got started in Japan, and it is Smart News is the number one source of news on mobile devices in Japan, um, and we are growing rapidly in the U.S. What we do is to uh, we have partnerships with about 350 publishers um, in the U.S., uh, and we use machine learning and algorithms. To, um, uh, to identify important stories and elevate them. One of the things that sets us apart, though, is that unlike a lot of other aggregators um, who are optimized for personalization, for trying to create news of interest to a, uh, an audience of one, you, uh, we are trying to create something that is of interest to a broad audience. So we use personalization um, in a much more judicious way, and we um, expose our users deliberately um, to stories that may not match their preconceived notions. Um, you are almost guaranteed to see 
um, stories on occasionally in smart news that you personally dislike. Uh, if you look at the app stores, at the app store reviews, you'll see some reviewers will say, you know, I saw a story from Mother Jones or um, or MSNBC. These guys are all lefty liberals. And you'll see other users say, well, I saw a story from Fox News. These guys are all right wingers. Um, and the, the answer is we're neither. But we're deliberately trying to cast as wide a net as possible to expose users to um, things that they might find unexpected. And um, the idea is to try to puncture filter bubbles rather than reinforce them. And the interesting thing is, despite those complaints about, you know, I, I saw a story I disagreed with, if you look at third-party research, uh, you find that smart news users consume much more news through smart news than users of, of most other news services um, uh, and, and every other aggregator. And the reason for that is because the ultimate enemy for journalism is boredom. If you only are exposed to the things that you, quote, already know or already believe, uh, it's, like you, it's like a sugar rush at first. But over time, you get tired of it because you're never learning anything new. So what we're trying to do is to expose people to new stuff. That you know that that's so fast. I had nothing. I had no knowledge of smart news, but like that's really unbelievably topical right now, and like uh, what we need in this moment. So that's fascinating. So final question. Obviously, you're still fascinated by technology and how technology um, uh, is affecting news delivery and information delivery and things like that. So. I I don't want to frame this as like a how how does it feel to be old thing, but you're also teaching, and as you've said a couple times, like um, when you're when you're talking to college students now, and you're talking about these things that you were like, you were like the weirdo early adopter, however many years ago, and now you're 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 having to explain <laughs> these concepts that that seem obvious now, like. Um, what do you what do you do when you're talking to to young people when you're teaching um is is it do you feel like you're you're giving history now or do you still or do you feel like that the lessons that you learned throughout the evolution of media in your career um are are almost more important now because like this is something that is not a and I'm editorializing I apologize <laughs> This is something that is not a solved issue. You know, like social media has been killed by certain big players. There's other areas of technology that have been killed, but I feel like media is still in flux. So do you feel like you're giving history to kids or do you feel like you're you're still trying to give lessons that will move things forward and, and, and get media to the place that it, it deserves to be? Well, I am giving history. Um, but I am also a firm believer um, that you can't possibly figure out where you're going unless you know where you've been. And so uh, one, of the, one of the themes of the class is that it, uh, it connects, you know, we go back to some of the, the earliest experiments in online news, um, and you can draw a straight line to things that are going on today. Um, the debate about 
about, you know, will people pay for content in, uh, on the Internet, which was I still have the scars from 1995 and 1996 from the, the battles that I fought back then. I still got those those scars, but that's still a real issue today. And um, uh, and, you know, to understand how we got to where we are um, is critically important to figure out where we need to go next. Well, you know, you're you're preaching to the choir because that's why I'm doing this show all the time. Um, Rich Jaroslawski, thanks for um, sharing your part of this, remembering all that and um, continuing uh, to to move the ball forward and and um, preserve those lessons. Thanks very much. It's um, it's been a great ride and I'm looking forward to the future. If you like what you've heard on this episode, please support us by subscribing to the podcast so you can get great news stories and conversations every two weeks. And please buy the book that was based on this podcast, How the Internet Happened from Netscape to the iPhone by me, Brian McCullough. Order it now wherever books are sold. How the Internet Happened. And if you weren't aware, I host a daily tech news podcast every weekday that comes out at 5 p.m. In that show, I tell you what happened that day in the world of tech. It's only 15 to 20 minutes long, and it's great if you love tech news. Search your podcast app for Ride Home to find the show. It's called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Thanks.